Welcome to episode 115 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and never more so than today when we have, as our guest commentator, Oren Kerr, cybersecurity and cyber law guru, uh, and a professor of law at George Washington University. Welcome, Oren. Thank you. I. Uh, also uh, uh, present today, Katie Castle, an attorney in our International Regulation and Compliance Group here in D.C. Maury Schenk um, uh, from uh, our London office, a former managing partner there, uh, now advising Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, holding the record, as everyone has heard, uh, for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Um, so uh, lots of small topics uh, or middle-sized, bite-sized topics. Uh, uh, let's start with uh, European developments. Uh, um, the EU and the U.S. have reached agreement on a law enforcement data sharing uh, arrangement. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, what do you think? Is this, a, is this big news or no news at all? It's not huge news, but it's a really interesting part of the swirl of data protection issues that are going around. So, you know, the EU has just decided that the general data protection regulation will come into force in two years, and on the same day, they adopted a new regulation on law enforcement access to data, and this will tie into the uh, the privacy shield debate, this new EU-US pact. Uh, rather than Congress holding up ratification, ratification is being held up on the EU side over privacy concerns that are likely to tie into the privacy shield. So it's a major area of debate at the moment. So it, it, it adds to the logjam of legislation in which um, uh, the European Parliament is asked to do something a little awkward for it to do uh, and not consistent with its usual uh, um, uh, approach to U.S. bashing uh, uh, legislation. So, uh, um, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, uh, we It probably is easy to approve this one because... Lord knows the Europeans um, probably get ten times as much information on law enforcement uh, matters from the U.S. as they give, um, and so there'd be a grave temptation to uh, uh, try to uh, pass this. Uh, but uh, the inclination just to stick it to, to the U.S. and to reject any agreement the U.S. is party to is going to be substantial. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not quite as negative on the European attitude as uh, as you are, Stuart, but I, the basic motivations, I agree completely. Yeah, well, it would be hard to be more negative, so I, 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 <laughs> I'll agree with you on that. Uh, uh, European Parliament, uh, then, you think uh, will ultimately pass this, uh, but it's going to take its time? Yeah, I think so. I, I would be sh- shocked if it isn't passed um, eventually, and I doubt that this one will change that much, but I think probably the privacy shield will um, will be debated, and I, I think European Parliament will wait to see what happens on the privacy shield before they sign off on this one, and, and changes to that are somewhat more likely, I believe. Yep, and the effective date, that's no surprise. It was going to be two years, and it's like May of next, uh, uh, of 2018, right, for the general Correct. data protection? Correct. We just didn't rate. know the exact date, but it's... Um, now the clock starts, and it's going to require some pretty significant changes. The, big, the biggest one, as we mentioned, 
several times on previous podcasts, is EU data protection law is now going to reach out beyond the borders of the EU to European data that's processed abroad for marketing or uh, or tracking purposes, and um, that's going to be a big deal. Yeah. Uh, well, I noticed that, you know, the, the US-EU data protection for law enforcement uh, uh, agreement is the reason that Congress passed the Judicial Redress Act allowing um, certain foreign nationals to have rights equivalent to Americans uh, um, with respect to uh, uh, data under the Privacy Act. Uh, but they... Uh, imposed some conditions. They said, well, this is only going to apply if and when uh, the pact takes effect and if and uh, when we determine that uh, the Europeans or anybody else are actually cooperating with uh, the U.S. on things like counterterrorism. So uh, there's this sort of very gradually dawning uh, realization in Congress that maybe um, the Europeans are playing us. And I wouldn't be surprised to see something similar in connection with this effort to uh, establish jurisdiction over how data is processed in the United States, because uh, it does seem like they're having it both ways. Uh, first, they get to regulate uh, stuff when it le- after it's left the country, uh, after it's left the jurisdiction, and they still get to say, you're not allowed to leave the jurisdiction if we don't like the laws of your country. Uh, not sure that those two are completely consistent. Yeah, and I think that's going to, when people wake up to this over the next two, I mean, some people have already woken up to it, but when the implementation deadline starts getting closer, it's going to be a big deal. The Privacy uh, Judicial Redress Act really gave away very little, yes. and, and Congress put some hooks in that. And... Um, there, there could be bigger battles ahead. Yeah, I've been, I've been struck. Uh, I, I played a role in getting some of the conditionality put on uh, the Judicial Redress Act, uh, and there were a lot of uh, big multinationals lobbying against doing anything and wringing their hands over the possibility that this would complicate the Judicial Redress Act. Uh, but more recently, uh, I've started to hear from multinationals who said, to, you know, that was actually. Not a bad thing to remind the Europeans that they uh, uh, they don't have a Congress that just resonates to the same uh, melody as uh, uh, the European Parliament, and that if they keep messing with the U.S. on this issue, sooner or later there's going to be payback, and it, it might be big, and it might be uh, quite unhappy for uh, for Europe. So uh, we will continue to see this, and the fact that. Uh, some of the big multinationals are starting to say stuff like that. Suggest that sometime in the next two years, somebody's going to say, you know, this is a this is a real problem. If we're going to be fined two percent of our gross uh, um, uh, revenue uh, as a uh, an incentive to listen to European regulators, that's a pretty heavy penalty. Yeah, give us give them a few years, and people, you'll be in the privacy ma- mainstream, Stuart, and. The Europeans will be thanking you for warning them when you were at Homeland Security. I, I look forward to that, uh, and I promise not. I, I, I promise Brussels that I will not say I told you so, because uh, I'm saying it now. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's jump to the uh, to the next issue because uh, we, we got a lot of little things to clean up. Amazon uh, is liable for in-app purchases by kids. Uh, um, uh, Katie, what's happening in that uh, uh, in that issue? 
Right. So the uh, federal district court recently found Amazon liable under the FTC Act for unfair practices involving billing for in-app purchases made by children on their parents' account. Um, so what was happening was the um, these apps were labeled free and then they were downloaded and there was no password or other means that was necessary for it's for a kid to, in the app, make an in-app purchase. So the um, kids just kept buying stuff and buying stuff on their parents' credit card. Exactly. And this actually isn't the only case that in, in, involved this kind of practice. The um, Apple and Google both uh, settled with FTC back in 2014 for the same issue. And it looks like Amazon changed all its procedures and then just didn't settle because they didn't, I guess, they didn't want to have a uh, an injunction ordered against them. Is that right? I think so. I think that's what happened. The Amazon now requires passwords uh, for every first purchase and then kind of gives the customer the option of requiring password for every purchase. Um, and there was no injunction. The court found that, you know, Amazon had fixed its practices and there was no need for the injunction. So the uh, I, I'm happy to beat up the FTC uh, uh, over their uh, the peculiar style of regulation, but actually uh, uh, Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights has a style of investigation and in, uh, vindication of privacy rights that's even more striking, uh, um, HHS imposed a three-quarters of a million dollar fine just for failing to uh, to sign up to uh, an agreement on how to handle uh, medical information? Right. So HIPAA requires uh, business associate agreements, um, a covered entity to share health information with with any service provider or uh, contractor has to sign a written business associate agreement. And in this case... Um, they the the clinic that um, got fined actually self-reported the violation, and there was no evidence there was any harm to patient. This was they you just know, they said, just, well, oh, we, we forgot to to sign. This was uh, my memory is that they were taking X-rays and recovering the silver from the X-rays, uh, uh, and then. Um, digitizing the data that had been on the x-ray, uh, and the company that was recovering the silver hadn't signed up to, uh, to promise to treat the medical information confidentially. Exactly. That's, that's exactly what happened. There, there don't appear to be any other allegations related to security failures or other violations of HIPAA. It was just not having this written business that's, associate agreement. That's nuts. That's basically saying, hey, look, you know, a chance to impose a fine. Uh, you, you reported yourself. Uh, congratulations. That'll be three, three quarters of a million dollars. Right. And the, the, um, they also entered into a corrective action plan that it seems to have a lot of oversight by HHS too. The, all of their, uh, new regulations and policies and training materials all have to be approved by HHS before they go into effect. So. Oh, I wonder where they would have gotten that idea, FTC. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, actually, speaking of the FTC, I guess I, I should uh, uh, point out uh, that uh, GCHQ's uh, security guys uh, have, uh, I guess they're, it's now the CESG, I forget what it stands for, uh, uh, but uh, a, a cybersecurity organization affiliated with uh, GCHQ in the UK has said, you know, um, making people change their passwords is not a great idea uh, for a whole bunch of, of reasons that you can't remember them. When you change them, you change them a little. You change it from one to two or put in a date and change the date. Uh, and that makes the password extraordinarily easy to guess, which means that the 
password doesn't actually provide much protection, so you would have been better off picking one password and keeping it for a year rather than changing it three times uh, from, uh, you know, Alakazam 1 to Alakazam 2 to Alakazam 3. Um, I, I find that interesting just because the FTC uh, continues to say, we're not telling you uh, how to do security, just do what makes sense. And of course, one of the things you ought to do is change your uh, passwords frequently. Uh, um, so again, the, the FTC's failure to actually write standards and tell people in clear language what they're supposed to do is causing real problems for people to know, you know, should I be following the advice or should I be doing what uh, most people now think is is sensible with respect to uh, um, uh, changing passwords. So uh, that's my, uh, uh, you know, obligatory um, 20 seconds abusing the FTC. Now we'll go back to your regularly scheduled programming. The First Circuit uh, has... uh, uh, created a conflict uh, over the Video uh, Privacy Protection Act. Um, and this means it's going to the Supreme Court on a remarkably narrow uh, uh, ground or potentially going to the Supreme Court. Maybe this is going to turn out to be fact-bound. Uh, um, but the, the question of the Video uh, Privacy Protection Act has always been, well, what's a subscriber? If I give you a free app, are you a subscriber or are you just the beneficiary of... Uh, the free app, uh, um, and if I know you by a number, I just assign you a number, uh, and then I keep records publicly, uh, is the number um, personally identifiable information? And the First Circuit has said, uh, free app, yes, you are a subscriber, and yes, the number means that you're, uh, uh, that's personally identifiable information. Uh, that's not what most of the other courts have decided, but it now looks as though the First Circuit has quite deliberately created a conflict, and we're going to be bound for the Supreme Court. Uh, at which point, uh, Oren, you will have to opine on this uh, <laughs> this question uh, uh, to, to, I think, everyone's regret. Uh, okay, fingerprint to unlock your phone. How many times are we going to have to answer this, and, and when will the... Silicon Valley press realized that this is not a hard legal issue, uh, uh, but there's another uh, 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 case being uh, touted. Uh, uh, a, I think it's a California case involving who knew Armenian gangs. Uh, apparently, there are, are are Armenian gangs in uh, uh, California, and the uh, the woman whose whose finger was used, who was forced to give a fingerprint. Uh, um, I'm not going to pronounce it because she has 11 letters in her name and nine of them are consonants. <laughs> Reminds me of that um, onion story about the emergency uh, airlift of vowels to uh, uh, former Yugoslavia. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, is is there anything hard here? Did you follow this? Did you see this case? Uh, or do you just uh, uh, look at them and move on? I think anything involving an iPhone is automatically a huge mm-hmm. media story, uh, and you can find someone willing to say that the government is wrong, yes. uh, because they, whether it's because they really love their iPhones or for some other reason. Uh, but no, this, this is just not a difficult legal question. There are interesting legal questions about the scope of the Fifth Amendment involving access to computers and access to phones. Uh, but putting your thumbprint uh, on your phone mm. is just not one of them. They did find they found they found a law professor who said there was a problem. <laughs> and, yes, somewhat embarrassed to admit that. <laughs> okay, um, uh, let's see. Um, 
Oh, we have we haven't finished with the FTC after all. There's this uh, uh, handheld vaporizer case, uh, and the uh, again not a real privacy. Um, Problem. Uh, that is to say, there was no privacy violation. It's just uh, that uh, the company said, uh, "Yeah, yeah, we're part of the APEC uh, um, uh, privacy uh, standards," uh, when they weren't, and the FTC caught them. Uh, uh, Maury, anything particularly interesting about this, other than I didn't know that APEC had a set of standards, uh, evidently sort of similar to the safe harbor. Neither did I, but the safe harbor linkage is what I found interesting because. To the extent there was safe harbor enforcement in the U.S., it was the FTC doing exactly this, going after companies that said they were safe harbor certified and uh, and weren't. And in the Privacy Shield, one of the improvements that people like in Europe is that both the FTC and um, and the Department of Commerce have said that an area of increased enforcement and surveillance will be going after this kind of problem. This seems like 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 a regulatory shooting of fish in barrels. You just have to get a list of all the companies that are on that that actually have have uh, met the requirements and have registered with the uh, the government and saying yes, I am I'm I'm con- I'm compliant with the safe harbor or or Apex version of that, uh, and then you just Google the phrase compliant with Apex, I uh, uh, and um, uh, look for any website that doesn't have a name that resolves to one of the companies that uh, is on the list, and and you've got uh, a bunch of people who are uh, uh, targets for enforcement. Yeah, it's it's pretty easy enforcement, but you know. Going after the easy cases sometimes has an effect. You know, Rudy Giuliani and his zero tolerance in New York did some stuff in the city, so maybe they're thinking along those lines. I think it, it, uh, you're, you're probably glorifying it. I think what they're really doing is, is uh, uh, pandering to the EU, which uh, has complained that it's not getting enough enforcement time from the FTC uh, and has not... Uh, been willing to let the FTC just hang a few people high and uh, leave the rest to uh, to draw the lesson. Uh, uh, so this is this is probably a reshaping of their priorities to go after these uh, uh, these particular fish in order to make everybody feel that uh, they can sign on to the uh, uh, the privacy shield and any similar uh, deal with Asia, um, and they'll get some enforcement out of the FTC. Yeah, I. I don't disagree. I'm again. I'm just a little more European than you are, Stepto. Uh, Stuart. Yeah. Well, you're 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 closer to them. Although, uh, if if we get Brexit, you may be uh, every bit as far away from them as uh, as the U.S. Uh, um, uh, and I take it uh, Brexit's getting serious consideration, huh? Yeah. I mean, it's running in the mid 40s, both for and against, with um, you know a lot of undecideds, and people seem to feel it could go either way, and. I'm in the camp of thinking it would be sort of shooting ourselves well more than in the foot to do a do huge economic damage to the UK, but uh, reasonable people seem to differ. So it's uh, it's going to be an interesting next month or so until the vote. Yeah, my my guess is the undecideds usually vote you know break for certainty and uh, fear mongering. Uh, so that there, it's likely that the uh, stay camp will uh, uh, will get more of those undecided because uh, I mean if uh, if that weren't the case then people would be voting for candidates like Donald Trump 
Oops. <laughs> okay, so maybe, maybe, uh, in fact, uh, it's time for the elites to lose one, but, uh, I'm guessing Brexit is not it. Uh, all right, uh, moving, moving back to law. Um, the Brazilians are at it again, and in fact, it's the same judge has imposed yet another, right, um, ban on the use of WhatsApp for, I think, 48 hours this time. Uh, I, and once again, it, uh, uh, the ban lasted less than a day before a higher court overturned it. Uh, uh, so it's kind of hard to know what, what to make of this. Uh, this is, this might just be the Brazilian equivalent of the revolt of the magistrates. One guy with a Jones for, uh, for WhatsApp, uh, um, who keeps getting overturned by the, um, higher courts, uh, and certainly, you know, causes all kinds of, um, uh, upset in Brazil, which probably has more WhatsApp users than, than any other country. Um, uh, but it might also be, a, you know, early warning of what I've been suggesting, which is that uh, other countries are not going to thank U.S. tech companies for their privacy stands. They're going to pillory them for interfering with criminal investigations that, that people in those countries care about. So we don't know yet. It may just be one guy. Uh, uh, but... Uh, uh, no one has stopped him from doing this, and it sounds like he's going to do it again uh, um, sooner or later because uh, um, he hasn't been deterred by being overturned a couple of times already. So that's uh, uh, – I think that is uh, – oh, I, I, I'm going to save this for, uh, 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 for the discussion with Oren. Uh, Twitter uh, – Twitter's lawsuit against the U.S. Uh, – claiming that the U.S. was squelching its First Amendment rights um, has been uh, made actually a fair amount of progress, both congressionally and judicially. Um, a couple of courts uh, gave it serious consideration. One said this, the, the provision was unconstitutional. Uh, others said that there were ways to salvage the, uh, the gag orders. Um, but I think it plays to something that you're working on, Oren, uh, which is this idea that uh, there's an interplay when you're regulating how law enforcement carries out investigations between the constitutional determinations and the, um, the statutory determinations. And, and what seems to have happened here is courts said, yeah, we think this is unconstitutional, just imposing gag orders without end on uh, people uh, like Twitter uh, when they get investigative uh, uh, processes. Uh, and then Congress sort of addressed most of the concerns uh, uh, in uh, in the USA Freedom Act, uh, and uh, uh, as a result, courts have been backpedaling like mad, saying, "Oh, okay, now now the Congress has, has dealt with this. We think it's responsible. We're not going to interfere with it." So they haven't quite abandoned the field, and in this case, uh, the judge said it's moot. Everything is moot. But if you want to come back and tell me that the USA Freedom Act is uh, uh, unconstitutional, uh, you can file an amended complaint. Uh, um, so uh, the work you've been doing in the area of uh, when should courts defer to, to congressional enactments in this area, and when should they double down on them is, I think, directly relevant to this Twitter litigation. Yeah, so actually I can't comment on the Twitter litigation. I have a, I have a, a relationship with the firm Perkins Coie that is litigating the case on behalf of Twitter. So that, 
That is a separate ah, separate okay, issue. In I, fact, I have not read any of these underlying <laughs> cases, so I I really can't comment on that. The the article I'm writing is actually a Fourth Amendment uh, uh, article rather than a First Amendment article, and it's a, it's about what do you do when legislatures have enacted privacy protections that expressly regulate evidence collection? Uh, so it could be the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, or it could be FISA, or it could be um, laws regulating when an arrest can be made or when an interview can take place. Lots and lots of statutes uh, have been uh, drafted in this area and continue to be drafted. Uh, the Email Privacy Act, currently pending, is one example. Uh, California's Electronic Communications Privacy Act uh, it recently went to effect. California is another example. The interesting and recurring question is, do any of these statutes have an effect on how courts should interpret the Fourth Amendment? Uh, right. And, and what makes it really interesting is that there's basically a three-way division of, of authority, sort of a, a massive uncertainty as to how to answer this question, with some courts saying, well, you kind of – you go towards what the legislature did. You take the So the legislature answer. has established, for example, what's a reasonable expectation yeah, of privacy exactly. and their, therefore – Their society, they've established a reasonable expectation of privacy or what they did is presumptively reasonable because they're reasonable people. Uh, <laughs> In which case we should just bail out as the courts, it, right? It, well, there's well, – there's, so there's a couple different answers. Some courts say – well, we should adopt what the legislature did as a matter of constitutional law. Other courts say, well, because the legislature acted, we should step out and not try to interfere with the act, the, the sort of regulatory regime of the legislature. And then some courts say, listen, we're doing the Fourth Amendment. They're doing statutory privacy law. They're just different, and we shouldn't try to mix them. And there's, so there's I, authority on all three positions. And so the article sort of takes looks at the cases and then and then argues that the the best answer here is to have independence between legislative privacy protection and fourth amendment uh, and that the fourth amendment does not consider these statutes so i or should I, not. I, I i thought it was interesting i thought maybe you had over categorized them uh, uh, in the sense that you know some of the um, the determinations are just an application of the obvious rule that you give some constitutional deference to Congress when they say this is the rule and if they've made a reasonable choice, um, uh, the, your interpretation of the Constitution ought to be influenced by that. That is to say you shouldn't rush to, to hold unconstitutional a uh, congressional enactment and therefore if what they've done is not uh, obviously wrong as a matter of constitutional law, you'd say, well, why wouldn't I leave that law in place? Right. Well, I, I think it's because we're dealing with the Bill of Rights. Uh, we're dealing not with just the presumption of constitutionality. Normally, you'd say the statute is constitutional, but uh, a regulatory statute that says, you know, the government can do X, courts no- normally don't defer to Congress's wisdom that this is reasonable or that a warrant should or should not be required. Really? Because, yeah, you know, what, what could be more squishy than reasonable or reasonable expectation of privacy uh, uh, and under our constitutional system, there is a presumption that Congress is reasonable, uh, or at least a, a disinclination to say, you know, I have a slightly different view of what's un, what's reasonable, so I'm going to strike down a congressional enactment. Right. Well, so so there's two parts of that. One is I think the right answer is to not strike down the con- the constitutional enactment, but to say that on an as-applied basis – the law was applied wrongly in this particular context. So, you, so there's you, no presumption right. you could say of an it, as-applied Great, great as law applied you've got there, Congress. It's just irrelevant because we've stepped in and, and created a constitutional law a rule that is 
uh, always going to bite more deeply than your statutory. Law. That's that's right. And then and then second, in terms of the reasonable expectation of privacy test, you know, I, I don't think it's quite as as mushy as as you're suggesting. Uh, and part of the reason is that. Or, or at least as released here, you know, if you look at what the Supreme Court was doing when they en- enacted this reasonable ex- expectation of privacy test, it wasn't sort of, you know, we kind of think about what it seems reasonable to expect. Uh, uh, that's kind of if you just look at the words of the right. test, but that's not actually what the court was doing. I think what the court was doing was saying, you know, we, we're trying to figure out what society currently holds as deeply private, or what what is perceived as private. Uh, as a matter of society, in terms of see, go I have back a to the cynical view. What they're saying is, we don't care what you think is reasonable. What matters is what we think is well, reasonable. Well, as is always going to be the Supreme Court. They're trying to divine what society thinks, which is going to be deeply influenced by they think what they think. Um, but I think I think the 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 reason why the Supreme Court you know relies on this idea of society is that they need to know what's actually important to people in terms of how technologies are used. The example being mm-hmm. in the Katz case with the telephone. So the, the court says, you know, the telephone is so important to people, therefore we recognize uh, that, that that it's protected under, under the Fourth Amendment. Uh, and so this is not just a question of like, well, the legislature decided this was important or not important, because legislatures enact privacy protections when something's not particularly important, but actually there's not a lot of law enforcement benefit, or they'll decide we're not going to enact a privacy law because the Supreme Court has already taken care of this. Right. An example would be, you know, there's no law that says you can't search a home. There, there's no statute that says that. Because we don't the, need one. We don't need one. Um, so legislative privacy protections, I think, are a terrible guide for the kind of inquiry you're supposed to make under CATS. So I thought, I thought you were... Very persuasive when you said that U.S. the courts should not hijack a determination by Congress or the states that we're going to we're going to regulate investigations in a particular area and say that shows that it's a reasonable expectation of privacy and the full weight of the Fourth Amendment with the warrants and probable cause and the exclusionary rule uh, follows from that determination because Congress might say we're going to regulate um, uh, a particular investigative practice by saying it's all covered by our regulatory regime, but our regulatory regime only requires a subpoena and uh, uh, imposes a $1,000 fine on the police rather than engaging in uh, uh, the uh, using the exclusionary rule. Right. Yeah. A lot of the uses of these arguments are to are sort of result oriented ways of saying we should have more privacy or we should have less privacy. And you can always pick an argument. You can say that the fact that a statute exists means no, even though it's weak, Congress has effectively ruled that there is a reasonable expectation of privacy and the court should defer. Uh, or you could say the fact that the statute is not quite as strong as the Fourth Amendment would be if it applied means that Congress has definitively said there's no reasonable expectation of privacy. So pick your argument. You can go in any direction you want. So, so. the argument that um, you shouldn't defer to – obviously, Congress doesn't get to tell us what our Fourth Amendment rights are. But Congress has enormous uh, advantages over the uh, courts in setting arbitrary rules where arbitrary rules have to be set, where you have to say, as we as we did since 1986 and still do but soon won't, um, is say, you know – at some point, your emails go from communications that, when intercepted, feel like a wiretap to communications that, when uh, uh, obtained, feel like the fruits of a subpoena to a third party. And that rule is 180 days. Right. Uh, and uh, 
that's been mocked by the people who want to pass the new law as uh, somehow uh, completely clueless. But it's actually a, a perfectly rational decision. Uh, but the courts could never have come up with 180 days as the rule, at least not without 10 years of litigation and at least two Supreme Court decisions. Yeah, there's no doubt that Congress has a lot of institutional advantages over the courts in this area. Uh, the, the mosaic theory of trying to regulate long-term privacy is a, a good example of this. Courts just can't do that, and Congress right. easily could. Uh, and so the question is, wh- where do you go from that? And, and, and so some courts, Justice Alito in his concurring opinion in Riley says, well, you know, if the, the legislature is taking a good crack at it, then we should step away. Uh, because they're so much better at it and we don't want to interfere with their regulatory system. Uh, uh, I think the better answer is to say, listen, no matter whether the legislature has acted or not, courts should defer where, when technology is in flux because they don't right. know where the rules should be. Well, and they uh, should give the usual deference to the, Congress, that, the, right? Well, well, not, not, they should give deference. They should be cautious about having a, a judicial answer regardless of whether Congress has acted or not. And th- this is an interesting mm-hmm. question, too. How do you construe congressional silence? Oh, yeah. So some will say, well, congressional silence means that Congress has said there should be no privacy here. Right. Others will say congressional silence means Congress has not yet reached the point where it's ready to recognize privacy, but that's coming any second now. Right. Um, so, again, it's you, know, there's, you can draw your narrative this about any Smith particular... This is Maryland debate, right? Uh, uh, where right now under Smith versus Maryland, if you've given data to a third party, you're, uh, that party can hand it over uh, under whatever... Uh, subpoena or other regime applies, and if Congress hasn't set one up, it's just a subpoena or, frankly, it's a volunteer, a volunteering. You can just give it to the government. Right. Although in Smith, now we have a statute, right? So we have a pen register statute that regulates that, and so the argument becomes, well, because Congress enacted a pen register law, we should now say that Smith was wrong. And then the counterargument becomes, well, Congress only enacted a very low threshold privacy law. They did not regulate they had the warrant princi- requirement. They, they, they had a, a decision principle that still is highly relevant. So, so, so it's a really interesting question. It comes up in tons of different contexts. And, and the article I have, it's uh, forthcoming in the Michigan Law Review. Uh, and I, I should have a draft up on SSRN uh, in a few days if I can finally finish this draft. Very good. Uh, very good. Uh, okay. So, so the other thing you wanted to talk about uh, is a, a decision from Judge Hogan in the FISC, the FISA court. Uh, um, that uh, led me to make some comments uh, earlier in a couple of, a couple of uh, uh, shows ago. Uh, this was a determination. The, the question was: when you collect uh, information under 702, uh, uh, you have a have to have a foreign target. So you collect the uh, uh, emails without a, a, a warrant uh, uh, of a foreign target whose uh, data happens to be stored or passing through the United States, uh, uh, and of of course, he's writing to somebody, and in some cases, he's writing to Americans, uh, and uh, uh, so that the content of the Americans' communications also in uh, turned over with those um, uh, uh, those communications. And the question was, well, can you search that data for an American's name? Uh, and uh, uh, do you need a warrant to do that? Uh, and uh, Amy Jeffress, uh, who was the just about the first amicus appointed, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, by the FISA court, 
dutifully made that argument. It's also an argument that is made, you know, kind of the the the, the go-to trope for uh, civil libertarians when talking about 7020. What about those Americans' data that might be searched? Um, and uh, uh, they've been arguing for a warrant requirement, and I thought it was pretty amusing that the first use of the uh, amicus procedure, which the left had asked for, and the 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 publication of a a decision which would not have been published, but for all the uh, uh, the left's uh, complaints, uh, has sort of dramatically weakened the argument uh, because, of course, it's already been addressed by the court, and they said, uh, uh, no, the Fourth Amendment doesn't require a warrant. Uh, I'm guessing that you have a different take on this, so I'm going to give you a chance to lay it out. Yeah, so what I was struck by in the opinion was something a little bit different, which is what does the court think it's doing when it's talking about the Fourth Amendment? Um, so there's a statutory requirement that before approving the order, there has to, the court needs to say that the monitoring or the order is in compliance with the Fourth Amendment. Right. The interesting question to me is like, what what is that? Because you know, I, I spent a lot of time studying the Fourth Amendment, and the the kind of analysis the court gave was so different from anything that I've ever seen uh, that I'm, I'm sort of scanning my Fourth Amendment brain looking for places where this will connect to, and it just didn't connect to anything. Well, that's interesting because, so, because it's, a, it's, a, it's a reg, it's a, well, it's a, it's a minimization procedure, and the minimization procedures just sit there. They, they're not a particular case or controversy. There's, there's so no case or con- There's no facts. Right. There's no facts. So, so and, it's, and it's ordinarily, an, it's Fourth Amendment law is case-by-case. Case. It's, it's a case-by-case case inquiry. You say, here's a search. Was this search reasonable or unreasonable? And you can't answer it without coming up with a particular set of facts. And here Judge Hogan, as a matter of statutory law, has to answer a constitutional question. But the constitutional question is devoid of any facts. And it's not just look at the order. It's sort of look at the program. And is the program constitutional? In order to do that, he kind of breaks out different parts of the program. He says, well, here's one scenario that will apply. Here's another scenario. This seems to be reasonable. This won't be a search. He sort of cobbles together this constitutional analysis. And it's unlike anything I've ever seen. Right, so it's it's right. sort of a you, you, Fisk version of the Fourth Amendment. It, I, I'd just love to know what another court would do, a, you know, sort of standard Article Three so you case could, or controversy situation. Yeah, yeah. So you where could, you'd you, say, listen, there's there's a program of I don't know how many tens of thousands of employees are working right. on this uh, program. Um, but uh, surely there are going to be some circumstances where the Fourth Amendment is violated. Sort of, it's, it's almost impossible to have a regime of massive surveillance that is involving some searches, as which we're, we're agreed w- would be the case, where there isn't like one inadvertent constitutional violation, maybe like one tenth of one percent. Who knows? But th- the court is sort of saying like overall this is reasonable. It's just not. Yeah, yeah. What, no, what is I, that? I think, so, so, so it's I, Congress's fault. Congress is the one that said you need to look at this, but nobody ever thought to. Answer, no, no, like, it's the FISA court's fault too. I, the oh, FISA court has been enthusiastic about accepting these invitations, uh, uh, about becoming something more than a court and dealing with something more than a case or controversy. Uh, uh, their their administration of the FISA uh, over time has been full of making up rules uh, and demanding things that are probably not in the statute just because their sense of how the program ought to operate and their desire to show that they're uh, good stewards of America's civil liberties right. uh, leads them to ask for more. Uh, so I, I, this is of a piece with years of FISA court 
uh, jurisprudence. And you can, you've seen it. You, you, I think you saw, uh, uh a, the chief judge of the FISA court, uh, wrote an opinion where he said, um, you know, you've been over collecting in this area by, uh, 0.24%, uh, and, that's it. That's it. I'm I'm through. That's a right. violation of the Fourth Amendment because it's unreasonable. And you kind of scratch your head and said, "Well, how could, how did you get there?" Uh, it was another uh, example of a case I read that had exactly. I had the same reaction. What what is this? This is not Fourth Amendment law. This is sort of it's because um, they're doing common some- law regulatory. You're you're doing something that I think is not a good ideaism or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I or, don't know or, what, what is it. It's well, not it, you know it's, it's not so different from the. DC Circuit's relationship with the Federal Communications Commission, right? It's, right. Uh, no, no, sorry. I, you know, we know something about this, and 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 what you're doing just makes no sense to us. So stop it. Uh, in a kind of familiarity breeds contempt at a view of the institution that you're overseeing. That uh, once you've gotten the answer to your questions over and over again, you start to patch it all together and you can say, I see how this all works and now I see why what they're saying, you could say it another way, you could do it a different way and it would be okay, so I am going to decide to make them do it the different way. So I think that's what's going on here, but I agree with you that if you try to fit it into the usual Article 3 uh, requirement, and this really raises questions about whether FISA is consistent with Article 3, it's almost an invitation to overbreadth analysis. Please look at the statute, and if you find any significant overbreadth, uh, uh, if you can find a significant number of uh, um, circumstances in which this could be applied unconstitutionally, strike it down. And, I, you know, if, if, you, if you need to justify it, that's the way to justify it. But there is no overbreadth analysis in Fourth Amendment law. <laughs> little minor <laughs> detail. Doc, there is now. Knit. There is um, now, though. I think that's, but it's 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 the same thing. So it we is, feel yeah. so strongly about the Fourth Amendment in this context that we're going to um, require that the rules go through an overbreadth analysis. I mean, the overbreadth for the First Amendment is just uh, just there because apparently we care so much about the First Amendment that we get a special procedural rule for it. Yeah, it, it it struck me as an odd odd thing, and I assume it's going to continue because there's no no obvious force that will stop the fist from from handing down these sorts of opinions. And, and I'm not convinced. I should add, I'm not convinced that it's a bad thing to do. If you're sort of constructing a regulatory system, having the court do this kind of is this good or bad on the whole kind of analysis, maybe that's a good thing. But it sure doesn't look like Fourth Amendment. So law. It, I mean, it's Congress's fault. It's our fault as a country. We decided we wanted. More, right? Uh, you remember when uh, uh, John L. Lewis was took the coal miners out on strike in the middle of a war, and they said, "You know, Mr. Lewis, what do you want?" He said, "More." Uh, that's uh, that's what the we decided. Uh, we had all these legal rules for uh, how um, 702 worked and how uh, the uh, uh, the FISA court was going to be working, and uh, everybody uh, uh, decided. Oh, you know, we're really uneasy about all this, so let's have more civil liberties somehow. And the easy way to do it was to tell the court, uh, we want you to uh, ride herd on this process. And it seemed like a judicial role to decide whether the Fourth Amendment uh, was violated or not. But I, I, I completely agree with you that deciding whether rules violate the Fourth Amendment is a very peculiar uh posture. Yeah. All right. Um, 
Speaking of which, uh, I note that uh, NSA and CIA searches for uh, U.S. citizens' data have doubled since uh, 2013, the last two years. I thought that was interesting. Uh, that probably explains why there is one of the reasons why there's all this fuss about uh, searches of Americans' data, although if you had to have a good explanation of why that would happen, you only have to look at uh, the rise of ISIS and their enthusiastic uh, efforts to recruit people in the United States and the number of people who have fallen prey to that recruitment uh, to say, it's amazing we only doubled the number of searches we were doing because uh, we, ISIS certainly did more than double its recruits. Uh, and the FISA court and this also ties into the, you know, the FISA court announced, uh, or maybe the Justice Department announced the FISA court had not turned down any surveillance orders, which again is not surprising when you look at the political dynamic because in 2015, um, if you had to tell Congress that you'd been turned, you'd ask for something that was deemed illegal, um, you know, it would be as much as your job was worth to, uh, to do that. So, uh, I'm sure there's enormous amounts of self-censorship on the part of the um, agencies asking for review. But think about it from the FISA court's point of view. You're sitting there. You're engaged in this aggressive oversight of the uh, uh, FISA uh, searches. And you're sending things back and saying, I'm not going to approve that unless you fix this, fix that. People are saying, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, I'm going to fix it. They fix it. They bring it to you. You say, okay, they did what I told them to do. I guess I'll approve it. Um, and your thanks from a grateful public is to excoriate you as a rubber stamp judge because uh, uh, all you did was approve what the agency had, had asked for, which I think accounts for their kind of continuing determination to – oversee NSA and NSD at DOJ more aggressively uh, uh, and not to worry too much about whether that's their judicial role. Uh, besides, I, I have to say, can you imagine a more boring judicial role than reviewing nothing but wiretap orders day in and day out? <laughs> you know, it's no wonder that they get more creative. <laughs> All right. Um well, thank you, uh, Oren. Uh, anything else you want to uh, uh, promote? Uh, any speeches you're giving? Uh, the one thing I would like to promote is I have a forthcoming book. Ah, um, okay. That, uh, yeah. I can't believe I didn't mention it till now. Uh, the Digital Fourth Amendment, which will be published by uh, Oxford University Press uh, sometime next year. How many books uh, have you written now? I've never written a general – I've done case books and treatises yeah. and all that kind of stuff, but I've never done a regular – Book, book. It's painful, isn't it? Uh, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, good, good stuff. All right. Well, I, 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 I often say that I, I think writing a book is a little like giving birth to a child that you aren't ready to start on the next one until you've completely forgotten how painful it was to do the first. <laughs> well, this is my first one, so maybe I haven't <laughs> yeah, had yeah. that. Yeah. Well, or maybe you're just, uh, you know, uh, it, you're, you're, you're easy. Uh, uh, okay. Um, so, um, Oren Kerr, uh, Maury Shank, uh, Katie Castle, thank you all for uh, uh, your contributions. Uh, the the uh, Cyberlaw Podcast is open to feedback now. Uh, uh, send us uh, suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, uh, we're always looking for good reviews uh, on uh, iTunes. Uh, I have to say I was disappointed to see the first uh, ideological pan uh, for our uh, uh, podcast uh, uh, 
somebody too, uh, too liberal. Exactly, exactly. They, yeah, no, figured. they uh, they said, "Oh, he's in the tank for the government," uh, uh, and gave me one star. So uh, there you go. Uh, uh, bad news on the podcast uh, uh, review front, but uh, we got a number of other people uh, gave us uh, five stars. So I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, uh, this has been episode 115 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, coming up, we're going to be joined by Dmitry Alperovich, uh, who's the CTO and co-founder of CrowdStrike, by Kevin Kelly, who's the author of The Inevitable. Uh, he's a futurist and a uh, deep thinker about where the uh, uh, where technology is taking us. Uh, and Congressman Will Hurd, uh, uh, one of the most thoughtful uh, uh, members of Congress, uh, who is... Uh, Chairman of a, an investigative um, uh, uh, subcommittee uh, in the House Investigations Committee. Uh, uh, we hope uh, that you'll join us for those and other guests as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. <laughs>